0: It's Friday, November 8th. From the Ryersonian, I'm Karen Sandoval-Santana.
1: And I'm Charlie Buckley. You're You're listening listening to Blue and and Gold.
0: Since mid-October, the country of Lebanon has erupted in protests against their government's perceived inability to solve a looming financial crisis. Sparked in response to new proposed taxes on tobacco, gasoline, WhatsApp communications and more. The protests have seen demonstrators take to the streets in the city of Beirut and across the country to speak out against their leaders. This week, we're joined by Ryersonian editor-in-chief Maria Seru to talk us through what's been going on. Later in the show, we sit down with Xavier Caffrey, organizer of solidarity demonstrations here in the GTA to walk us through his experience.
1: Maria, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me, Charlie.
1: So obviously this story is pretty multifaceted. It's been going on for a couple of weeks. There's been a lot of developments since things kicked off earlier this fall. Can you kind of walk us through the lead up to the fall's protests? Why did new taxes lead to such widespread action in Lebanon?
0: So the wave of protests was triggered by a proposed tax of 20 U.S. cents on the first call WhatsApp users make every day. The proposal was scrapped, but the move tapped into deep-rooted frustration. There have been protests in the past, but these demonstrations are representative of socioeconomic class trumping sectarian identity in a way that's unprecedented, really. And that's why millions are taking to the street to rally behind a common cause. The WhatsApp tax, think of it as the straw that broke the camel's back. Lebanese people have had enough of widespread corruption, nepotism, gridlock in government, failing public services. They've had enough of intermittent electricity and water, dismal telecommunications at exorbitant prices, uh, the smell of trash wafting through Beirut neighborhoods. Much of Lebanon's ruling elite hail from political parties or families that have been in power since the end of the 1975 to 1990 civil war. And so anger with The country's political leaders protecting their personal interest as the economy deteriorates and the country's infrastructure crumbles has been building up for years now. And that's why these protests are the largest that Lebanon has seen in the post-Civil War era.
1: And one of the big developments since things have started is, of course, Lebanon's prime minister has announced resignation, which kind of puts the future in, in question politically. What does that really mean for government in Lebanon?
0: So I'll give you an overview of what it means for the prime minister to resign and then what it means for the country, the country's government now. At the 13-day mark, Lebanon's former prime minister, Saad Hariri, submitted his resignation to Lebanon's president, Michel Aoun. Earlier in the week, he had reportedly made direct contact with Hezbollah for the first time in two years, and he'd proposed to the president the creation of an emergency cabinet made up of a small group of technocrats to steer the country towards necessary reforms. But he wasn't able to reach an agreement with them. Foreign Minister, Gibran Basile, who is also the son-in-law of the president, he's a point of dispute. Both men, Ron and Basile, are allied with Hezbollah and they're the target of much protester vitriol. But the president has insisted on remaining in office and keeping Basile in his post as foreign minister or caretaker foreign minister now. The former prime minister isn't really alone in his opinion on Basile. He has the support of two major political party leaders, Walid Jumblat of the Progressive Socialist Party and Samir Jarja of the Lebanese forces. So Hariri wanted a reshuffle that would remove Basile, but he was met with resistance on the basis that demonstrators might not leave the streets and demand more concessions. So Hariri resigned to deliver what he called a positive shock, but it was also a good way for him to deflect public anger and help him regain some political capital. According to the Constitution, and to prevent a lengthy power vacuum, the president now has to hold consultations with the heads of parliamentary blocs about who should be the next prime minister. Uh, By convention, whoever gets the most votes gets designated as the next prime minister and then sets off to form a new cabinet. Because the former council of ministers is usually considered resigned when the prime minister resigns. For now, the president has asked the cabinet to stay on board and serve as a caretaker cabinet until a new prime minister is appointed. It's been nine days since then, and the president hasn't hasn't made any announcements. There's no legal or political deadline for him to schedule consultations, but the past two times Lebanon has had a sudden collapse of government, the president has been quicker to act.
1: What do you think that means?
0: Well, to agree on a prime minister it might take a lot of time, right? The political oligarchy might be hedging its bets on a waiting game to put economic pressure on protesters. We're in the third week of protests now, and the country's economic paralysis is really putting strain on small to medium-sized businesses, and we're seeing the first wave of layoffs and bankruptcies.
1: How has it looked on the ground so far in Beirut and across the country?
0: Roadblocks have emerged as a key strategy for protesters. The goal was to paralyze the country and put economic pressure on politicians, but also to maintain and sustain the uprising, otherwise it would fizzle out. Major barricades sprung up across the main highway, which runs along the Mediterranean coast, on small mountain roads, in towns and villages in the south and the east. The country is in some ways at a standstill, even more so when protests started, but the uprising has closed banks, schools, and some businesses. So if you're a university student, your midterm's Midterms probably got pushed back, and you got an email from your professor telling you not to come to class. If you're an employee, maybe you didn't go to work for two weeks. Banks closed for two weeks, and they reopened five days ago, but with some new withdrawal limits or wire transfer caps, although the Lebanese Central Bank pledged to not implement any capital controls. There have been moments of violence, so security forces fired tear gas and rubber bullets and violently rounded up protesters, There was a brief eruption of armed conflict between Hezbollah fighters and anti-government protesters. The Lebanese army has opened fire on dozens of demonstrators, but there have also been moments of kind of stolen solidarity between the Lebanese army and protesters. So there's this video that went viral of a soldier holding the hand of a protester behind his back. Another one of a soldier crying while protesters wiped tears off his face and comforted him. Um, there have been some really offbeat and fun moments, too. So couples that are just married showing up to the demonstrations in their wedding dresses and, and suits and people celebrating birthdays. Someone brought an inflatable pool. Others set up furniture in the middle of the highway. There's a really cute video of a family that got stuck in traffic at a roadblock, and protesters surrounded the car and sang Baby Shark to the toddler in the passenger seat. Protesters formed a human chain across the length of the country in, like, this symbol of solidarity. My favorite videos are of DJs blasting music from their balconies while protesters sing and dance in the streets below. You can count on the Lebanese to turn the revolution into a rave. But I just think that these protests are really representative of Lebanese national identity in that they're playful and vibrant, but also resilient and unyielding.
1: What has the general response been from the government?
0: So this just came out yesterday. There's a movement called the Free Patriotic Movement, which is led by Foreign Minister Gibran Basile and was founded by the now president, Michel Aoun. So the FPM has filed a lawsuit calling on the public prosecutor to take action against protesters for, I quote, infringement of freely moving across the country and causing material and moral damage to citizens. That's unfortunate. I think that if the public prosecutor decides to go through with this, it'll backfire. The president also tweeted yesterday that 17 corruption cases have been referred for investigation, presumably since the protests began. So the question is, why were these cases referred now? Why weren't they referred before? What was holding them back?
1: What are the demands? What what does a future look like that's in the ideal for Mm -hmm. for protesters?
0: I saw this infographic made by researchers at the American University of Beirut who compiled lists of demands from protesters. At the top of the list of demands is the formation of a technocrat or national rescue mini-cabinet. There's also a complete call uh, for resignation or change of cabinet. Protesters want early parliamentary elections They want new electoral law that's civil, modern, and non-sectarian. They want the recovery of stolen public funds, fair tax and financial procedures. They want the judiciary's independence, um, integrity and impartiality. Also on that list is lifting bank secrecy, preserving the environment, taxes on the profits of banks, establishing a civil state, waste management, Uh, reforms to the National uh, Social Security Fund, including Social Security for the elderly, recouping public properties, including maritime, inland, and riverside properties, improving urban planning, uh, electricity sector reform, finding solutions uh, to stateless or, um, in quote, under review individuals in Lebanon, and supporting Lebanese women's right to grant citizenship to their children. So... Overall, their demands are to hold the corrupt accountable and to establish social and economic justice.
1: So it's a a long list of demands, of course. There's a lot of work to be done, it Mm -hmm. seems, but Mm -hmm. there's also so much political will behind it amongst the protesters. I mean, certainly it's still early days, but what do you think the future looks like within the next couple of weeks or months in Lebanon?
0: One thing that could happen is, like we mentioned before, the ruling class decides to kind of hedge their bets on a waiting game to put pressure on protesters, and they take a very long time to pick a new prime minister or choose a cabinet. Maybe what happens is President On reappoints uh, Saad Hariri to form a government, which he has the power to do, and then Hariri will have to decide whether to try to put together a cabinet that keeps Hezbollah and its allies in parliament happy, or accept the protesters' demands and put forward technocrats for ministerial posts. Gibran Basile and Hezbollah are the two main obstacles when it comes to forming a technocratic government because Basile doesn't have the qualifications to resume his role in a government like that. Hezbollah and the president may choose to resist or facilitate his decision. But another option is President On, former Prime Minister Hariri, and Hezbollah can maybe reach an agreement that removes controversial ministers like Basile and replaces them with technocrats. So there's a possibility of a mixed cabinet with technocrats handling big portfolio ministries while other politicians handle state ministries, but I'm not sure that an amended version of the cabinet is enough to appease public anger or um, take protesters off the streets. There's the possibility of a cabinet that represents the sizes of parliamentary, parliamentary blocks um, maybe Hariri put someone in his place, like a protege. Alternatively, On and Hezbollah could use their majority to sideline Hariri, and in that case, he might choose to fight back, which would reignite sectarian sentiments. That kind of government would be at risk of being perceived as a Hezbollah-controlled government and could face sanctions from the U.S. So just late last week, the White House froze U.S. military aid to Lebanon including a package worth $105 million. There have been reports of a secretive four-hour meeting between former Prime Minister Hariri and the Foreign Minister Gibran Basile to decide the shape of the government, which was attended or maybe even mediated by a Beirut-based Jordanian businessman named Ala al-Khawaja, who saved a big commercial Lebanese bank from potential collapse. That bank is owned by the Hariri family. so. Who knows? Maybe the ruling class is buying time to allow for a backroom deal uh, to be made before they put on a grand performance of like constitutional theater. But ultimately, there are a lot of factors and moving parts that'll determine how all this ends.
1: Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything else that you think needs to be mentioned?
0: I think that what will lead to the formation of a technocratic government is the continuity of protester momentum. As long as the momentum keeps going, and I think it is, then I think protesters will get what they want.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the show this week.
0: Thank you, Charlie.
1: (laughs) Xavier, thanks for joining us.
2: Of course, thanks for having me, So,
1: to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in the solidarity protests?
2: Sure. So, uh, where do I begin? I mean, it all started off, honestly, when uh, the fires happened in Lebanon. So before the protests actually started with the revolution, however you want to call it, uh, there was a massive fire that broke out at 2 a.m., I believe, in Lebanon. And it was awful because we found out, first of all, it took like six hours for response to actually come through. And when they did, they, they came with no water so they couldn't take out the fire eventually. And I could be wrong here numbers wise, but I believe that fire ended up being responsible of burning up to 20% of Lebanon's uh, like nature, or green mm-hmm. space, however you want to call it. Um, so when that happened, that that was crazy, right? I woke up to that news and like I was legit upset. This is this is my country. I love Lebanon, I was born and raised there, right? So I saw that and I wanted to take an initiative, but I found out through a friend on Instagram that someone else in uh, Montreal already did. And I'm a firm believer when stuff like that happens, if someone else already did, let's say in this case was a GoFundMe, doesn't make sense to do another GoFundMe. You might as well put all the energy into one, right? Mm -hmm. Raise uh, as much awareness as you can about this campaign and as much money as you can about this campaign. So that's what I did. And we were very content that happened, right? Uh, Fast forward a couple of days, I wake up, and now I find out that everyone's on the street, like in Lebanon, obviously, and they're protesting. I didn't really take it too seriously in the beginning. Like, I've seen this before, like, Mm -hmm. a lot of protests usually happen, but this was different. So when I started to feel like it was really different, like, oh my God, this this might be the first time our people are actually opened up their eyes. Maybe I should do something about it. Ironically, a couple of months before I made that decision, I started my own group, Canada's Lebanese community, because I'm not one to really like, I don't like to sit down and complain. I I want to do something about it. And when I did complain, my complaint was I, I don't really see our people together. right? I know there's a lot of Lebanese people in Toronto, but they're not really, It's not there's no community. Everyone's doing their own thing and I hated them. Why, why can't we get together and enjoy our culture? So that was the driving factor why I did the protest. I'm like, I I, I need to do something. I can't just sit here and do nothing. I have family in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And it literally just started off on social media. I I made a post with a friend, uh, like an event page on Facebook, and it blew up. And my phone was just buzzing every five seconds. It was was insane.
1: And when you say it blew up, what kind of, I guess, could you walk us through what the demonstrations here in the GTA actually were? Like what kind of? Turnout? how many people
2: so we did run through a couple obstacles we posted the wrong poster in the beginning and that that poster was up for an hour and in that one hour on on just on my page right on instagram it had 250 shares right Mm. on facebook i don't know how much it it had i don't have twitter but i was getting messages from people saying yo like you're trending on twitter or keep seeing your name everywhere i'm like oh say it i I had no idea so we took it down and then once we established everything like the, the time location and all the logistics I ended up uh, on Facebook, I had uh, like the attendees were 1,300 Instagram, again, just on my page because everyone was reposting. I had like, I think 500 shares. It went around, right? As for the turnout itself, if I had to guess here, like, uh, you know, Young and Dundas, right? Yeah. We basically filled up the square. And and there was another demonstration as well, right? Yes. So that's another one I also got involved with in Mississauga so the beautiful thing about the first demonstration is it was the first step to a really large movement because what happened when it was over i went home tired as hell like i just wanted to go to sleep but my phone kept on buzzing I'm like okay maybe it's just people saying thank you right and granted a lot of a lot of it was that but then a lot of it was uh, it it motivated them right because that's the thing it's like so i personally also really like psychology right i know this is like one experiment where um, a Darren Brown did it, who's also a magician, where like, they're in a room, right? And they have, like, let's say, like eight people. And they, one, of, one of the persons uh, who's sitting in there is in on the experiment, and they tell him, just stand up every three seconds and sit back down. And there's something, man, there's something about people. When you see that, you feel like, oh, I should be doing that too. And then give it like a couple of minutes, everyone else was doing the same thing, even though no one told them to do it, right? It's fascinating. So this is kind of the same phenomenon, right? After I did it, now everyone's like, oh, let's do another one. Hey, I wanna do this one here, I wanna do this one here. So I got reached out by this one lady, her name's uh, Suzanne, absolutely amazing. She's very passionate, very uh, uh, motivated. She said, I wanna do one in Mississauga, can you help me out? I said, of course. I'm running on a drill in here, right? I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm, like, the Lebanese Che Guevara. I'm like, oh, my God, let's do this. So <laughs> I ended up helping her out. We did the one in Mississauga. It was an amazing turnout as well, almost the same as Young and Dundas. And
1: mm-hmm. yeah. I, I kind of want to ask you, how does it feel to have hundreds of people gathered around you demonstrating here and while also seeing what's going on back home in Lebanon? Like, what's that kind of duality feel like to you?
2: I think it's a reminder that I think we put this idea aside that, like we live in a first world country right Canada's amazing uh, it offers us almost everything you can think of right so the problem is getting comfortable i think a lot of Lebanese people got way too comfortable and they forgot But like the, at the end of the day this is not our home right it, we make it our home now right but at the end of the day we came from a completely different country and a lot of us didn't choose like i can obviously speak for myself here i didn't just come here because i wanted to I had to. I came like, here because of war. We were pushed to leave our country. So seeing the hundreds of people come up and like actually open their eyes to what's happened, like, wow, like we have a chance to change the narrative. We have a chance where our cousins in Lebanon, right, or grandparents, whoever, even just friends in Lebanon can actually build a future down there. Like, you know, it's honestly a very normal conversation to have with your kid in Lebanon when he's like, I don't know, 12 years old, like... Listen, let's say, I don't know, let's give him a name, Michael. Listen, Michael, I, I need you to be excellent at school. I need you to do X, Y, and Z so they can accept you in France or they can accept you in Toronto or they can accept you in Italy, whatever. It's never like we're, you're never really like working towards building a career in Lebanon. It's always about building yourself so you can leave Lebanon. That's really messed up, right? It shouldn't be like that. So it was very heartwarming. And to be honest with you, a lot of the people, I obviously because I was socializing with people over there, right? I'm really happy to talk to my people. A lot of them were saying the same thing. Like I didn't even know there was this many Lebanese people in Toronto.
0: Mm-hmm. I
2: I actually didn't know either. I thought there's maybe like a I don't know like a couple of hundreds, you know, here and there. There's a lot of us here. Mm-hmm. You know? So now I'm glad we found one like common denominator to uh, agree on and go on the street and get to know each other and actually like uh, speak our opinion. So yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And we've been seeing in in the past couple of days and weeks some kind of politicians here in North America weigh in on what's going on in Lebanon, Democratic primary candidates in the U.S., Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders, and of course, even Canada's global affairs minister. How do you feel about that kind of attention from leaders here in in Canada and in the U.S.? Do you think that the West is kind of involved enough in what's going on or, or, or maybe too much?
2: First of all, I just want to say anything I'm about to tell you right now, guaranteed, is going to get some kind of hate anything right this is a very very sensitive topic because mm-hmm. as you know the middle east world it's um, no secret that the western world has been heavily involved in it right whether it's the u.s canada or whatever so i always reach out to my people in lebanon and ask them like what do you guys think go on the street and ask these people what do you think if we helped you out and it's honestly 50 50 a lot of people think that canada and the u.s are too involved we don't need their help we can take care of ourselves and other people say no how dare they not acknowledge our existence right If you're going to ask my personal opinion, I like to be very careful of what I say, right? I honestly don't think I'm too educated on this uh, topic yet. I still, like, when I go home, I really do my research and everything. Mm. But I don't think I have enough data yet to tell you, like, "Mm, I think the best decision right now is for the yes to get involved, right? But I will tell you this. It definitely doesn't hurt to go and just speak about it, to acknowledge its existence. Because you can easily argue that what's happening in lebanon is a humanitarian issue if they will speak about it i think that's the common ground that i highly doubt a lot of Lebanese people have something against it but when we're talking about like sending something to us or actual like physical involvement whether it comes to the um, economy or or the army or anything else that's happened in the past that's when things get really really uh, foggy mm-hmm. so yeah that, that's where i'm standing on this
1: If if you were to distill down into one kind of sentence W- the reason why y- you're acting. I-, I guess, what is the issue in Lebanon that most inspires you to to speak out?
2: I, can, I mean, it could be someone's one word. I'm patriotic, right? Like, um, I came... I'm 23 right now. I came when I was 15. So I got to see both the good and bad in Lebanon. And I know there's a lot of good in Lebanon. It's just the problem comes down to the corrupted politicians. That's really it, man. It's been mm-hmm. like that for 40 years. And... The thing is, like, what I always try to tell people is, obviously, how do these politicians come to uh, power? It's by voting, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reason, uh, the biggest reason why these guys get elected, if it's not due to corruption, right? when I say corruption, I mean, like, they literally just cheat. Even though they didn't get elected, they would cheat with the votes and so on. But a lot of the people vote for them because the politician will just come to you and be like, hey, I'll give you $500 right now if you just vote for me. And you're talking about people who, like, get paid, like, I don't know, maybe 100 bucks a month? If I come to you right now and say I give you five times that I amount right now, you'd say no? It's very difficult, especially when you have kids to take care of. Like, I, I understand why they did what they did, but there's this threshold, and we've reached it. Mm-hmm. We're at a point where both the rich and the poor can't live there. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I understand if the rich are living there, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, I'm willing to, to meet you guys halfway. I understand why it's so corrupted and it's working. But, no, if you're poor, you're screwed, right? If you're rich, the, the, the environment in Lebanon is so polluted. Like, I think Lebanon was ranked number one um Arab country in the Middle East identified to have cancer, right? Like it's really bad down there. So I, I think my country, like it used to be like the, the Switzerland, the Middle East, I, I want it back. Like, I, I just mm-hmm. want it back. It's really as simple as that. That's why I do what I do.
1: What is an ideal outcome for these demonstrations and days of action? What does the ideal future look like in Lebanon for you?
2: So for here, listen, I. I'm fully aware this issue is so complex that it's not going to get solved in a year or two. I always say it's a marathon, not a race, right? So when it comes to the situation in Lebanon, the ideal situation would be all the corrupted politicians would be out of power. If you ask me, I think all of them should go to jail because they've robbed our people. They've done worse. Bro, some of these guys are literally warlords. They were warlords in the... Civil War that happened in the uh, the 80s, Mm -hmm. they were warlords and now they're in power and people shake their hands like, you know, they haven't done anything wrong. So I think a lot of them should go to jail to set an example. Like if you're going to try to be corrupted, if you're going to try to steal money from the government, from us and so on and not give back to the people, that's what's going to happen to you. That's an ideal situation for me down there. And here, because like I said, it's going to take some time. I I really want us to be a, a, a strong community. Right, like if you ask me why I started, by the way, San Levine's community, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of my friends are Filipinos. They're from the Philippines, right? And I always admired these guys. Their community is untouchable. Like they're they're there for each other all the time. They're so tight. Like I loved it. the, 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 the family, the the way they go out. If someone starts a business, by the way, they are all support him. Like okay, why can't we have that? That's what I want. I really mm-hmm. want. I really want us to to, to to be known in Toronto. Like, okay, Toronto is a really multicultural society, but I want us to play part of that. Like, I want us to have more events happening, more people to know about our culture, dubke, music, all of that. So, the goal for a year or two is, you you're gonna see us do a lot more things, and uh, and we're gonna get noticed for, for the good things, not the, the negative signs for sure. There yeah. any other parting thoughts you want to share? I just want to say. The, the power of social media is absolutely insane. I can sit here and tell you, we can talk for hours about how much I hate social media, because I really do. But at the end of the day, it got me here, I'm talking to you because you mm-hmm. found me online, basically, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of other people I've connected to recently, or with, sorry, recently, uh, have been because of the protests I did on Facebook and Instagram so if you're listening to this if you want to make a change in anything whether your country's going through how like mine is or anything else honestly don't think that you don't have enough power to make a change because who am i at the end of the day honestly Mm -hmm. i literally just made a facebook post and it blew up and now i'm organizing all this and i'm actually making a difference so if you're out there and you want to do something do something you have no excuse whatsoever
1: thank you so much for coming on the show today thank
2: you for having me i appreciate it it's blue and
1: gold i'm charlie Buckley. Here's what else we're following this week. On Ryerson campus, a collaborative investigative journalism project into contamination in Canadian tap water went to print, featuring the work of Ryerson School of Journalism students Julie Mutis, Kenzie McLaren, Kiki Sakota, Victoria Shariati, and Kelly Skirvin, as well as Ryersonian editor Ben Cohen, alum Declan Keough, and me, Charlie Buckley. The project, published in outlets across the country as Tainted Water, was the work of more than 120 journalists and marks the end of more than a year of collaborative reporting. Elsewhere in Toronto Centre, Metrolinx authorities held a mock disaster situation at Union Station this weekend to train crisis response workers. Held during the hour lost to daylight savings switching over, the simulation featured volunteers playing the parts of gunshot victims, fast-moving security forces, and makeup artists milling about spraying fake blood to add to the sense of authenticity. The largest simulation of its kind, organized by Metrolinx, Sunday saw police, paramedics, and firefighters practice for one of the worst kinds of events the city can face. And finally, earlier this week, Green Party leader Elizabeth May announced that she would step down from the role after 13 years. May said she would keep the promise she made to her daughter that 2019 would be her last election run. The process of selecting a new leader will take place in Charlottetown this coming October, leaving Deputy Leader Joanne Roberts as interim party leader for the Greens. That's all for this week's Blue and Gold. Join us next week for more of your community's top stories. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and the Ryerson School of Journalism. Our host is Karen Sandoval-Santana, executive producing by me, additional reporting by Ryersonian editor-in-chief Maria Seru. Our managing editor is Juliana Perkins, instructors Peter Baco-George and H.G. Watson. Graphics by Aria DeLima and Sophie Diego. Special thanks to Angela Glover, Lindsay Hanna, Daniela Leru, and Gary Gould. Music this week provided by WeStar. My name is Charlie Buckley. Thanks for listening.